Genesis chapter 49. We uh, began last week in looking at the blessings of Jacob upon his twelve sons. And as we studied it, we'll find that there are several ways, several veins of truth, I guess we should say it that way, that we can mine as we look at this passage. We know that the Word of God says that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. And uh, I believe that tonight. Amen? It might mean something to you. It might mean something to me. But one of us is right. Amen? It means something. And it may have a dear or precious application to you. Uh, but this book is, though it is living, though it is breathing, it is absolute. And as such, it means something. And if we rob it of its meaning, we've robbed it of everything. That's part of the problem with these folks that, you know, they believe that, well, some of it's the Word of God, but not all of it's the Word of God. Well, who's to say what is and what isn't if you believe only part of it is? And so what that does is that casts a cloud of doubt over every time and every page that you read in the Word of God. Uh, I don't believe that this evening. I believe this book is perfect. I believe it's inspired. I believe it's the Word of God, and I believe it's, it's smarter than me. Somebody say amen to that. In the 49th chapter of the book of Genesis, Jacob is dying. And he summoned his sons around his bedside. And he tells them this in verse number 1, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable is water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it, he went up to my couch. Verse 5 says this, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the privilege to be with these folks this evening in your house. Lord, as we sit here with your precious, inspired, preserved Word, as we sit here with the Spirit of God indwelling those of us that know Christ as our Savior, we sit here with the songs of Zion and the common bond of Calvary. There's no reason we can't meet with you tonight. So, Lord, help us to get ourselves out of the way and to see, Lord, in your precious Word, Jesus Christ evidently set forth crucified among us. Lord, that you might gain glory that you might get bigger, Lord, and us get smaller, that you might increase, that we might decrease. Father, we ask this now in Christ's name. Amen. As you examine this passage of Scripture, Jacob says, I want to tell you some things that are going to befall you in the last days. That phrase, last days, is very important. It is not uh, just happenstance. It is not just common, uh, uh, you know, statements. It's not just a common phrase that was used every day in that time. But that phrase has a definite and distinct prophetic connotations to it. 
If you study through the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel, you'll find this phrase appearing over and over and over again, the last days. And it ties with the idea of the summing up of the redemptive plan of God for humanity. When we read these words, let me say there are three basic applications we can understand from them. And tonight I'll probably touch on a little bit all three. won't preach entirely from any of the three, but a little bit from all three of them. Let me say there is a prophetic understanding of these passages before us. You see, this is the point in the history of the nation of Israel where Israel ceases to be a family and begins to be a nation. When the curtain closes in the very next chapter on the book of Genesis, uh, the narrative concerning merely a family that has come from Abraham as the father uh, begins to wind down. And when you open to the book of Exodus, there's no longer a family, but now they're a nation uh, of millions of people. And for 400 years they were in bondage uh, under the hand of the Egyptian pharaohs. This is the last little bit that God's going to say about this family. And we read these passages, and as we read them, there are some things in these passages that are very reflective of the personality of these boys. But there are other things that are in these passages that could not be reflective of their personalities and must be reflective of something prophetically. Can I give you an example? When you look in the story or in the blessing on Simeon and Levi, God says this in verse number 7, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. Now, he's speaking about the 34th chapter of Genesis and the story of the slaying of Shechem and the men of uh, his city. But yet, in the very next phrase, he says this, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, God's not saying he's going to cut Simeon up into a bunch of little pieces. God's not saying he's going to grind Levi up as an individual and scatter him to the four winds. But rather, he is speaking prophetically of those tribes and their future history in the nation of Israel. Let me say this, that it goes even a step further because these 12 blessings portray for us a timeline for the nation of Israel from that point. When they ceased to be just a family and began to be a nation of tribes, from that point down to the time when God sets up a millennial kingdom. Can I give you an example? In uh, the prophecy of Reuben, we see much about Reuben's personal history. And we find out much about the future history of the tribe of Reuben. But is not the prophecy about Reuben uh, also a fitting description of the united nation of Israel? Uh, God says about Reuben, basically says, Reuben, I gave you everything uh, that you could have ever asked for. Jacob says, you were my firstborn. You were the power of my might. You were the excellency of my dignity. You were the excellency of my honor. Everything belonged to you. You had every opportunity in the world to excel, but because you're unstable as water, you'll not excel. In that same respect, the nation of Israel cradled in the heartbeat of God throughout eternity, past and future, the apple of God's eye, the treasure of His heart, given every opportunity. I mean, I'm talking about, uh, you know, we complain about government all the time, don't we? You know, we complain about government. Uh, you know, they had a theocracy. <laughs> I mean, it don't get much better than God being at the head of the army, marching in a pillar of fire uh, by night and a pillar of cloud by day. Uh, God carried them upon His almighty wings and His everlasting arms. He provided everything that the nation of Israel needed, but still they continued to rebel and rebel and rebel and rebel against Him. 
In the same respect, the prophecy of Simeon and Levi presents to us a pivotal point in the nation of Israel. For God addresses these two brothers collectively, and He presents to us the idea of a divided Israel. If in Reuben we see the rebellion of uh, a collective tribe or a united tribe, then in Simeon and Levi we see the ruin of a divided tribe. When we look at them, we know if you study the history of the nation of Israel, then you know that after Solomon, the son of David, died, uh, there was a man uh, by the name of Jeroboam who was an outcast, who was a rebel. He had been in exile in Egypt for a number of years, but he comes back and he steals the heart of the majority of the nation of Israel. He uh, creates an insurrection against Rehoboam, who's the son of Solomon, and that kingdom was split entirely in two. You then had the northern ten tribes of the nation of Israel, and you had the southern two tribes of the nation of Judah. I believe there is a dispensational understanding of this passage, but I believe there is also a dispositional understanding of this passage. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, we can understand this as we pull back and view it through the uh, telescope of the dispensations. But we can also pull out the microscope of personal application and find these things to be true about these sons. We talked last week about Reuben. And Reuben, uh, the thought behind him is this, squandered opportunities. And as you look at the life of Reuben, you find squandered opportunity after squandered opportunity. He was unstable. If there was a, a, a bad way to go, Reuben went there. Sometimes unwillingly, uh, sometimes unintentionally. But just as water always seeks the lowest level, it seemed like Reuben's personal personality was such that he always seeked the lowest level of character and, uh, and of morality. And Reuben was an unstable man. In the same sense, we find in the history of Simeon and Levi a similar truth. And we won't take the time to read it, but I, I encourage you to read the 34th chapter of the book of Genesis when you get an opportunity to. But can I give you a... Uh, a, a uh, well, I'll get it here in a second. I got words. I used a lot of words this morning, so I don't have a whole lot left a synopsis of the 34th chapter of the book of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis chapter number 34, uh, Reuben and Simeon and Levi, the, the brethren, they have a sister by the name of Dinah. And Dinah makes up her mind that she's going to go out and she's going to travel the land. She's going to see the daughters of the land of Canaan. And she happens upon a man by the name of Shechem. And Shechem, when he looks upon her, he lusts after, he desires her, and he lays with her forcibly. And uh, she is ashamed. She is uh, basically uh, uh, marked and, and uh, an outcast now as far as society would be concerned. But somewhere in the midst of that wicked act, Shechem grew to love Dinah. And so Shechem goes to Jacob and to the sons and says, I want to find a way so that I can marry Dinah. I know I've done wrong by her, but now I want to do right by her. And uh, I want to find some way that I can make this up to her and take her to be my bride. And I want to treat her well. And Jacob, for a myriad of reasons, uh, is comfortable with this arrangement. But the boys, Simeon and Levi, it doesn't sit well with them. And they go to uh, Shechem and to his father Hamer and they say, the only way we'll allow this is if all of the men of your city would be circumcised. If they'll do that, and if, if you'll uh, share commonly uh, your cattle with our cattle, and so we'll do trade with you, we'll allow our, our societies to interact one with the other, and so Shechem, because of the love that he had for Dinah, he said, of course we will. 
And uh, I'm not going to go into a bunch of details, but there's a reason the Bible talks about the eighth day circumcision. And, and there was a uh, recovery period, and even for a little baby there is, but so much the more for a grown man. And in the third day when they were recovering, uh, no doubt they probably had a fever. They probably were not able to get up and move around just yet. Uh, Simeon and Levi, they fall upon that little village, and with sword in hand they slay every single one of them, and they take for a spoil everything that's in the city. And it is of this that Jacob points back, and he says, cruelty, 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 cruelty. There is a personal application of these truths to their lives individually. But then let me say there is a practical application for you and I in this day that we live in. You see, we don't come to the Word of God. The Word of God, it's not decorative cake that sits under a glass. It's the bread from heaven that we consume and apply to our lives. And so as we look at this passage, I want us to think about a few things that may teach us something about sin's consequences. If there was a uh, theme to the story of Simeon and Levi, it might be this, that sin totally and utterly destroys. These were two young men that were raised in the same household as Joseph and Benjamin. They were raised in the same household as Reuben with all of his opportunities. Uh, Jacob would go on to bless several of his sons. And you have to understand, as Jacob made these blessings, they were practical, but they were also prophetic and inspired in a deeply significant way. And as he described some of his sons, he described them with the most tender terms. And others, he gave them a scathing rebuke. And Simeon and Levi had the same opportunities that these other boys had. They had the same privileges that the other boys had. And yet we find a vastly different into their lives because the effect of sin. I want us to notice a few things Jacob says, and I want you to hang with me. We'll try to preach through this as quick as the Lord will let us. Look at the very first phrase. You can imagine as they're gathered around this judgment seat of sorts, and uh, they listen to the scathing blessing, and uh, it was a blessing, but it seemed a blessing in disguise. It seemed like a condemnation upon Reuben. And Jacob turns his keen and aged eyes to Simeon and Levi. And the first thing he says, he denotes their confederacy. He says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. And you say, preacher, why is that so important for me to understand? Well, here's why. Because very few of us ever think about the Simeonites. But a preacher get up and preach three sermons. At some point, he'll usually mention a Levite. Both of these boys shared a common judgment. But both of these boys experienced a vastly different administration of that judgment. You see, Simeon would go on to be basically obliterated, whereas the Levites would go on to be blessed with the priesthood and be used to bless others. You say, preacher, why is that so important for us to notice? Here's why. Because there was one singular difference between the Simeonites and the Levites. And can I sum it up to you in one word? Repentance. Let me tell you something. Every single one of us, we sin. Here's the question. What are we going to do with that sin once we've sinned? Simeon and Levi are described in the same breath. One of them is almost obliterated. The other God uses uh, to foreshadow and to picture the sacrificial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of them is treated in shame. One of them is uh, treated in prominence. One of them's obliviated. The other's a blessing. And what was the difference? One tribe repented. And one tribe didn't. You can't avoid. Listen carefully. You walk through this world. I'm not saying we have to sin, but we will sin. 
You know, I'm not, I, I understand that with every temptation, God will make a way of escape. I understand that, and I, and I believe that. I, I don't believe any of us sin but what we choose to sin. But I understand that through the infirmity of the flesh, at some point, one way or another, you may be better than the guy next to you, you may be far better than me, but at some point, one way or the other, we're going to sin, we're going to mess up. So we better learn how to deal with that sin when the time comes. He speaks of their confederacy. But then I want you to notice that he speaks of their criminality. He says, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Now again, you can imagine the shock and the terror that comes into Simeon and Levi's mind when they hear this. It's been many long years since this crime has taken place. And yet, no sin goes unnoticed. Jacob still places his divinely inspired judgment directly where it belongs. And he points to them and he says, Sons, there are instruments of cruelty in your habitations. He speaks of their criminality. He speaks the capability of it. Isn't that interesting where he says, in your habitations? In other words, he's saying this, Boys, wherever you're at, there's the opportunity and the temptation to do wrong. Wherever That's what a habitation is, am I right? That's a home, that's a dwelling place. Somebody help me tonight. You helped me real good this morning. Help me good tonight. It's a habitation. He's saying this, boys, wherever you are, there's an opportunity to sin. Let me tell you something. We all like to think it ain't within us. But that's the very place that it sits, my friend. It's not in our circumstances. It's not in the treatment that we've received through life. You know who your greatest enemy is, is the person that stares back at you in the morning every day when you wake up. It's not everybody else, my neighbor. It is you that you have to contend with. He speaks of the capability to this sin, but he speaks of the capacity of this sin. He calls it what? Instruments of cruelty. In other words, he does not just say uh, opportunities for mistakes. That's how we'd say it, you know. Well, I didn't mean to. Sure you did. Sure you did. And so did I. Because when we sin, we sin willfully. And we may not plan on it getting out of hand. We may not plan on it going the way that it did, but we still planned on it. And he says, instruments of cruelty. Let me tell you something. It's easy to look down on death row and say, I could never be that way. Why? Why? You're made out of the same fallen, sin to pray, flesh and blood that the most wicked and rotten person walking down around a jail cell in the state penitentiary. You're made of the very same thing. I, you see, I, I, let me tell you something. I think part of the problem is we've just got real soft about dealing with this sin thing. We make all kinds of excuses. We give all kinds of reasons. And we don't call sin what it really is. It's wickedness. It's iniquity. It's rebellion against God. It's offensive to His nature and His holiness. It is insurrection against the authority of the Creator. It is an instrument of cruelty. And it's within you and me. It's funny, man. You watch kids. And I, I love kids. Let me tell you why. Uh, because they're all surface. Somebody say amen to that. You know, you've heard people say you can't fool dogs and kids. Uh, you know, there's a lot more people you can't fool. It's just those folks is too polite to tell you how it is. But kids, they'll tell you exactly how it is. And you'll hear people say all the time about kids in high school, they'll say this, kids are so cruel. You ever heard somebody say that about young people in high school? I, I was that kid. <laughs> I hate to confess that to you, but I was that kid. 
Uh, I've known lots of kids that were that way. But let me tell you something. I've seen adults with just as much cruelness, just as much venom, just as much malice, and just as much hatred. They may veil it in the thin rules of a polite society, but still it dwells within their dark heartbeat. They can be just as angry, just as full of rage, and just as full of spite as anybody else. You may think it's not within you, and if you do, that's exactly where the devil wants you. It's within you. He speaks of their criminality. So he gives us a description in the very first phrase. But then he turns his attention and he begins to relay how he feels about it. Now remember, Jacob is speaking as God to these boys. I mean, he is their father. They know he's their father. And in some ways he's relating things to the blessing. But I think even the boys understood that when he spoke, it was prophetic utterance that was taking place. And so he is telling them not only how he feels about their sin, he's telling them how God feels about their sin. And he says this in verse number five, or verse number six. He says, O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Unto their assembly, mine honor be not thou united. We see a description in his words, but we see the disgust in his words. If I wanted a big $10 word, I could have said disassociation. Because that's what he's doing. Jacob wants his boys to understand that he has no truck with what they've done. And he wants them to understand, and he made it perfectly clear, you know, we don't know how much Jacob said about Reuben's sin when Reuben committed incest with his stepmother, but we do know how Jacob felt about Simeon and Levi's sin because he's very clear about it in Genesis 34. He rebukes them very, very openly. He wants them to understand he has no sympathy with what they've done. You say, how's God feel about my sin? He's disgusted by it. My sin too. Everybody's sin. It turns the nose of a thrice holy God, the iniquity that we commit. And he says two things about it. He says, number one, I won't commune with sin. He says, O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Now, what was their secret? He's going to describe it a little later. But here was the secret. When you come to the end of Genesis chapter 34, uh, the, the boys say this to their father. Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, he says, you, You've made me a stench in the nose of the Canaanites and the Perizzites. You've brought great danger upon me. And he sort of rebukes them. And Simeon and Levi, they look at Jacob and they said, Should he deal with our sister after a harlot? They basically say, Is it right for him to treat her the way that he treated her? You know what their secret was? Despite all the facade of righteous indignation, it was just rage and anger. Let me tell you something. There's lots of folks. I've met people that 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 are right, and then I've met people that are wrong about the way they're right. You ever met somebody like that? They do this. Paul rebuked it. He said, to not use our liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. In other words, let me tell you something. Just because you're right, that doesn't mean that you get to be unchristlike about being right. <laughs> I've known lots of people that was that way. They was right and they was thrilled to death I was wrong. And they was ready to tell me their heart didn't break for the error of my ways. Their heart didn't break for the misunderstanding that I had. Their heart didn't break for where I was going wrong. They was just happy they was right and it wasn't them. These boys, they had a, they had a veil over their their intentions. But let me tell you something. God is the one. The Spirit of God, is He's the searcher of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And you may have everybody fooled, but you don't have God fooled. 
And God says this to the person of Jacob. He says, I won't come in and gather with them and whisper uh, like uh, thieves or bandits in a hideout. I won't have communion with them around that secret. In other words, God wants them to understand that their sin has placed a wedge in their fellowship. Now, I'm thankful that my relationship with God can never be severed, but you better believe, my neighbor, that your fellowship can be severed. Uh, Your sonship will never be taken from you, but your fellowship can be disrupted in a hurry because God will not commune with sin. What concord hath light with darkness? We regard iniquity in our hearts. The Lord will not hear us. When you have sin in your life, that disrupts your communion with God. You say, well, I hadn't noticed anything. Well, you might check up on what you thought was communion with God then because uh, like it or not, you will notice if you get sin in your life and don't notice a difference, there's something bad, bad wrong. The only kind of people that can't be bothered by sin is lost people and reprobate people. People with a seared conscience. People whom God has turned over uh, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the soul might be saved. Those types of people, they can have no problem sinning. And lost individuals that have never known the indwelling of the Holy Ghost, they can sin without having any problem with it. But let me tell you something. If you're a child of God, every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Every son. If you be without chastisement, then are you bastards and not sons. There's something bad wrong if you can sin without chastisement. And so he begins to convey his disgust. He says, I will not commune with their iniquity. And why? Because he will not condone their iniquity. He says this, under their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. Can I give you another word for honor that we're real familiar with? The idea of glory. Glory. In other words, God is saying this, I won't place my glory or my honor on a place where sin abides. You know why God won't commune with you? Uh, because to show up and to commune is to imply that your sin is not a big deal. And God will not commune with a man who's living with sin in his life because he's trying to purge that sin out of that person's life. God will not condone it. Let me tell you something. We have become a permissive society. The message we send to the world by what we allow to go on in the house of God is a shame. Man, let me tell you something. Them old-timers, you, I mean, you think I preach hard sometimes. Them old-timers, they, I mean, they, they didn't cut no punches. Somebody living in sin in the church, I mean, they wouldn't get up and use it as a bully pulpit. They'd call them by first, middle, and last name and give their social security number. And they'd say, you get it right or you get out. We're too polite to do that nowadays. Maybe that's why we've been robbed of the power of God in most of our churches. Maybe that's why. He wants these boys to understand that God will not condone their sin. I know God loves you. God loves me too. But it is contrary to the nature of God to be permissive in condoning of sin. So much so that when faced with man's sin problem, rather, and we talked a little bit about it this morning, rather than just simply condone it and ignore it, God sent His only begotten Son into the world that He might die for your sins and mine. Why? Romans chapter 3 says so that He could be both just and justifier of them uh, who place their faith in Jesus Christ, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. God's righteousness, God's holiness was so important to Him that He would rather see His Son die on a rugged cross than trample upon His own righteousness. By the way, He'd rather send His Son to a rugged cross than see you die without hope and in the devil's hell. 
That's the love of God. I already preached on grace this morning. I ain't got time to preach it again tonight. I want to. I think we'd all have a lot more fun. Amen? But there's preventative medicine. We see the disgust in his words. But I want you to notice this next phrase. This is interesting. As he's describing them and their iniquity, there is a denunciation concerning what they've done. He lays open their wickedness and he says this, For in their anger they slew a man. He describes them as deliberately wicked. Not by accident, but in their anger they slew a man. I won't say a lot about it because I've already said a lot about it. But any time that we sin, we may have not intended for it to get out of hand. But there's nobody sins by accident. Sin is an act of the intent will of mankind. We do it because we intend to do it. Now, we may have not got out of bed that morning and planned on doing it, but in that moment, we made a conscious decision to do wrong. Every time I've ever sinned in my life, I have made the choice to do it, not another man for me. I have chosen to sin. They may have claimed blind rage. They may have claimed to be, you know, uh, it's silly. Sometimes if you ever watch these court programs, it's silly what the courts allow folks to get away with nowadays, isn't it? You know, somebody can get up and say, well, I thought I was my neighbor's dog. And they say, not guilty, just let him go free. Put him in, a, put him in an insane asylum. That don't fly at the judgment seat. That don't fly when you stand before an almighty God. They said, but Father, we were, we were offended for our sister's honor. He says, no. No, boys, you slew a man in your anger. You did it intentionally. He describes them as, deliberate, as deliberately wicked, but then he describes them as dangerously willful. He says this, that ye digged down a wall. In self-will, you dig down a wall. It's interesting, I, me, and me and Brother Tim was talking a little bit this morning about, uh, about translators and, and the decisions they make and things like that. Most commentators will tell you that the King James Bible has this wrong. Now, we know they're wrong because we know the King James Bible isn't wrong. Somebody say amen there. If you want to talk about all the details, I can talk with you about the details. I can spend ten hours doing it, but I ask really that's what it boils down to. We know it's not wrong. The commentators claim that the phrase that's used uh, in digging down a wall is a mistranslation. They say what it should mean is you hamstringed an ox. That makes sense, right? That reads a lot smoother, you hamstringed an ox. Uh, the reason is because their little uh, crop-together notes have it wrong, and they, they, they put a jod where it don't belong. You see, even the context tells us that that interpretation, that translation is right there. Because when it says they dig down a wall, Jacob tells us exactly what that meant. He describes it in Genesis 34 when he says this to his boys. Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me to make me stink among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And I being few in number, they shall gather themselves together against me and slay me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my house. And they said, Should he deal with our sisters with an harlot? You know what Jacob is saying to his boys? He's saying this. We had a wall of protection. And in a few fierce moments, you knocked it all down. We were a blessing to these communities around us. But now we're a curse to them. And in a few moments, through your self-will, you destroyed all that we've worked and built. You know, that's how sin is. It's that way in two respects. One, in this respect, I believe that God puts a hedge about His people. 
I believe that. Now, you don't have to. You can call that nuts or spiritualized or whatever. But I believe God puts a hedge about His people. I believe God providentially protects their doings and their works. Uh, the Bible describes it in a million ways, but the one that comes to my mind uh, is uh, the first psalm where it says that uh, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper, speaking of the righteous man planted by the tree. That's a hedge of protection. God has a blessedness upon the life of those that uh, through faith and, and, and submission live and walk according to his word. But when we allow sin in our life, you know what happens? God lowers that hedge to allow us to see the ugliness of our iniquity. I'm not saying he throws that hedge away, because let me tell you something. If I got what was coming to me, I'd be in hell tonight with my neck broke right next to you. I understand that. But I know that sometimes God, he just lowers the walls a little bit. He lets a few troubles in to remind us of the consequences of sin. We can call it chastisement. Uh, there's a lot of ways it's described in the New Testament. Can I give you one example? Uh, John says this, there is a sin unto death. That's a good example. Uh, there's certain things when a man determines that he's going to live in unrighteousness that God finally says, all right, I'm going to let sin run its course as far as the consequences in their life. And I'm going to let them have a taste of what sin does. Jacob says the hedge has been torn down. But then let me say there's an application in this sense that sin can tear down things that we've worked so hard to build. There's no telling how many homes have been wrecked for just a few moments of pleasure. There's no telling how much trust has been utterly cast down and shattered to pieces for just a few little white lies. There's no telling, listen to me, how many people sit down in the jail cell today and never expect to see daylight again for just a few moments of wrongdoing. That's how dangerous sin is. Jacob looks at his boys and he says, we had built a wall, we had a home, we had a, a, a protection in our life. And in a moment, in a moment, you tore every bit of it down. There's a denunciation that takes place. And I like this. There's, there's a tone of hope. Let me tell you something, our God is a God of hope. He doesn't just leave us in the darkness. I want you to notice there's a distinction in his words. As he describes what they've done, he says, For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. But then he turns the tone and he says this, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. There is a distinction that Jacob makes, listen carefully, between the sin and the sinner. He doesn't curse the sinner. Instead, he curses the sin. He doesn't, listen, he, he, he turns his attention and he loves his boys enough to acknowledge that just as he can see the difference between what God intended them to be and what sin made them to be. God also can look from heaven at humanity and see a difference between what He intended them to be and what sin has caused them to be, insomuch that God uh, would formulate a plan that He might find a way to separate the sin and the sinner. And He describes it in two ways. Now, this is important, especially as we cast an eye to Calvary. Notice, number one, that their sin is a cursed thing. In other words, the hand of God is against their sin. So as long as they and their sin are tied hip to hip, then there's a curse on their life. But if they will only turn from their sin, then the curse can be done away with. You know, we talked a little bit about it this morning, but Paul said in the book of Galatians, 
uh, that cursed is everyone that continueth not therein, speaking of the Old Testament law. And that with the Old Testament law came a curse. Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree. In other words, the Old Testament law looked at those that had done wrong, those that had sinned, and said, you're a cursed people. The Bible also says this, that Christ Jesus was made the curse for you and I. He didn't just bear our sin. He became our sin. If God stretched back His everlasting arm to lay the fist of His judgment upon the lost sinner, we were allowed to get up from that place. And Christ, He laid down in that place. And where God should have smitten you and I, instead God smote Him. Where God should have cursed you and I, instead God laid the curse upon Him. Where God should have struck you and me dead, instead He allowed death to hover over the Son of God. And Christ was made the curse for us. He describes it as cursed, but he describes it as cruel. He says that their wrath was cruel. I think about what Christ went through on Calvary. And there's no better word, I don't guess, than the idea of cruel. It was vicious. It was angry. It was wrathful. It was ugly. You want an idea of what sin looks like to God? Look at the bloodied and beaten Son of God upon the cross of Calvary. That's what sin looks like to him. Imagine your own child or imagine someone you love hanging there, not for you or not for those that are his friends, but rather for his enemies. Not just hanging there bloodied and beaten, but everything that violates his nature and his character is placed upon him and is permeated within him. He becomes the very thing that is offensive to your nature. That's what sin looks like to God. It's a cruel thing. It's a cruel thing. There was no quarter given on Calvary. He bore the full punishment and the full payment for your sin and mine. There's a distinction that's made here. But then I want you to notice the decision of his words. He says this, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, we know that both these things happened in the history of the nation of Israel, and they happened in that order. The first thing that happened was they, as a kingdom and as a nation, were divided in two. And then we know and understand that the northern ten tribes were scattered. Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian emperor, came in and carried them away, and he put his own people there in Samaria and in the northern part of the kingdom and intermarried them with the Jews, and uh, those ten tribes were obliterated. That northern ten uh, tribes and that northern nation were utterly decimated, utterly obliterated in every way, shape, fashion, and form. But God had mercy upon the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. But we understand there's a practical application of this too. And that is this, that number one, sin, it divides. It divides. There is a division that takes place. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, let me ask you this. Do we not feel like a person divided when we're hiding sin in our lives? We can't be holy at peace. We can't be holy at ease. We know at any moment the chastisement of God might fall in our life. I found this to be true, that sin in the life of a person separates them from those that are living for God. You know, oftentimes I've found in my life that when I had sin in my life, I didn't want to be around people that lived for God. And I've found that when I've been living for God, folks that had sin in their life didn't want to be around me. It was a divisive thing. It divides as far as our families and our loved ones. It divides the church, but it divides the individual. 
Inasmuch as there is a struggle within when we have sin in our hearts and lives, as the old man clings to it bitterly and as the new man recoils at his presence in our life and in our activity, it's a divisive thing. But then we notice it's a dispersing thing. God scattered Israel. Let me tell you something. You live in sin long enough, God will scatter you too. Oh, we'll talk about grace in a moment. But I don't, listen, I don't want to in any way temper what I'm telling you. Sin has the ability to utterly destroy your life. Sin has the ability to take everything you love and grind it to powder. Sin has the ability to take everything you cherish and cast it in the gutter. Sin has the ability to take everything that's of value and cheapen it and sell it and hawk it on a street corner as though it's worth nothing to anyone. That's what sin will do to you. Sin has the ability to disperse. You know why the uh, nation of Israel is dispersed? Because they're consistent and constant rebellion against the Lord God of heaven. It wasn't that God didn't love them. God loved them. Oh, God loved them. Man, I, I think about what God said the book of Hosea. Man, the book of Hosea is interesting. And, and uh, stick with me for just a minute. I, there's probably something real good for fellowship time, so stick with me, okay? I... The book of Hosea, a lot of commentators have trouble with the book of Hosea. They describe it as schizophrenic. They describe it as scattered. They describe it as hard to comprehend. But you have to understand that the book of Hosea is written to reflect the prologue that's given at the beginning of the book of Hosea. The first three chapters of the book of Hosea describe a man whose wife that he loves dearly has been unfaithful. And uh, when you look at the way Hosea reacted at one minute he there's a scathing rebuke upon Gomer his wife in the next moment he loves her dearly and he wants her to come home in 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 one verse he he hates her and never wants to see her again in the next verse he'll do anything to bring her back home and make their home whole once again one commentator described it this way as though uh Hosea was lying upon the bed and he'd roll on one side and he'd pronounce judgment and he'd roll on the other side and he'd plead long suffering He'd roll back over and he'd pronounce judgment. He'd roll back over and he'd plead with long-suffering. The rest of the book of Hosea is God doing that with the nation of Israel. A few verses here and he's pronouncing judgment upon them for their rebelliousness. Then a few verses there and it's like he's rolled onto the other side and he's pleading with them and he's calling them with gentleness and kindness. Finally, in the midst of that turmoil... God cries out and He says, Oh, Ephraim, how shall I let thee go? God loved them dearly. Their sin may have been offensive to His nature, but God was able to make the distinction between the sin and the sinner. And He loved them dearly. It was at His utter protest that the tribes went into exile. He did everything that He could. Jacob says, one day, boys, God is going to scatter you because of your iniquity. But I think if we look carefully, there's a a word of deliverance that's found here. Now, it's not found in the few verses that we've read, but rather it's found in the very next verse. Look at verse number 8. Now, let's read them together, okay? Let's read verse number 5. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitation. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Under their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. 
Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And it's all bleak, and it's all dark, and the darkness is gathered in. But then the next word, he says, Judah, 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 thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. That don't mean a lot to me, preacher. Well, you've got to remember... You don't just understand this passage dispositionally, you understand it dispensationally. The tribes are sent into exile. Just a remnant is brought back in the land. Nothing of great significance is happening. And then all of a sudden, a man by the name of John the Baptist comes walking from the wilderness and begins to proclaim and say, Make straight the way of the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God, which take away the sin of the world. Or you know how the book of Revelation talks about Him? The book of Revelation calls Him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. There they are in the midst of sin and darkness. But then Judah's name is uttered. You remember the last time he said brethren? He said, Simeon, leave our brethren. But now he looks at Judah and he says, Judah is he whom his brethren shall praise. There's a note of hope and deliverance. If Simeon and Levi present to us historically the, the dispersion and destruction of the northern tribe and, and the judgment upon the southern tribe, then the very next thing in the chronology of God and the nation of Israel is the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prophecy, and we'll have plenty of time to preach on it in a couple of weeks, the prophecy about Judah concerns his earthly ministry. But I just want to note that in the midst of their sin and iniquity and rebellion, there is a promised Savior that's pointed to. And if they'll look to Him, He can provide them deliverance. Not only is there a promised Savior, but I just want to make a note that there is a place secure that God speaks of. As you look at the history of the tribe of Simeon, they diminished quicker than any other tribe. At the first uh, census that's given, there's, I believe, some 56,000 of them. And I might be wrong about that. But at the next census that's given, in Numbers chapter 26, there's only 22,000 of them remaining. Now, Reuben diminished pretty quick, but Simeon, he just nosed off. I mean, there was hardly anything left. Insomuch that when uh, Moses begins to offer the tribes to the blessings in Deuteronomy chapter 33... He doesn't even mention Simeon. That's how far sin had taken him. Sin had destroyed Simeon so far that he didn't even register as God was de- delving out the blessings to the tribes. So what happened to Simeon? Simeon lost everything. Simeon didn't excel. He didn't gain prominence. He, he lost everything in his life. His tribe was diminished. They inherited no portion of the land. There was no inheritance to the tribe of, of Simeon. Instead, that, that inheritance was, was turned around and, and was given to others. So what happened to them? Listen to what it says in Joshua chapter 19, verse 9. It says, Out of the portion of the children of Judah was the inheritance of the children of Simeon. For the part of the children of Judah, I like this, for the part of the children of Judah was too much for them. Therefore, the children of Simeon had their inheritance within the inheritance of them. <laughs> you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds to me like Judah, they just had more than they knew what to do with. And so out of their abundance, Simeon found a place of security. Let me tell you something, there's a lot of things. If you're saved tonight, there's a lot of things 
that sin can take from you. (laughs) But one thing that sin can never take from you is the place of security that you have in the lion of the tribe of Judah. You know why? Because you didn't get it by earning it. You got it because there was an abundance and it was given to you by grace. That can never be robbed from you. With everything that they lost, they couldn't lose a place in Judah because that place wasn't even rightfully theirs. You see, uh, nobody could take it because of Simeon because Judah had given it of their own free will. And so, at the end of the day, it really didn't belong to Simeon. It really belonged to Judah after all. And if they wanted to qualm about it, they'd have to... It wasn't no problem to go to war with Simeon. He wasn't much, but didn't nobody want to buy it off more than they could chew by going to war with Judah. And so in his person, there was a place of security found. You're going to sin. You're going to do wrong. What do you do? What do I do, preacher? What do I do with that sin? You repent of it. You go to the line of the tribe of Judah. You lay your sin at his feet and you say, I've sinned, I've done wrong, but please forgive me. Please forgive me. And if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin has dire consequences, but listen now. Christ bore the consequences on Calvary. And if we'll come to Him, we can continue to have communion with an Almighty God and have felt Nothing can shake your sonship. Nobody can take that place in Judah, but you can lose fellowship with Him. But if you'll only come to Him, fellowship can be restored. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.